Kids, give a high five to those around you. Say hello. We're so excited you're with us today. Good. Okay, good. Some of you are actually doing it. Well, we are currently in a series with Lent. And Lent is our time that we get to take a journey with the Lord. And we get to reflect. We get to remember. We get to repent. And we get to reconcile back to God. So we're three weeks into this Lenten season. And each week we've been looking at the suffering of Jesus. Camille helped us to reflect on Jesus' willingness to take on suffering, death to self for us. Judd invited us to look at how Jesus was abandoned by those he loved deeply, by those he called friends and brothers. And today is our third week. We're about halfway through this series, halfway through Lent, halfway to Resurrection Sunday. Can I get an amen? But I kept thinking about as I was preparing for this reflection, is the halfway point. And what would it have been like for Jesus those six weeks prior to the cross? What was Jesus' countdown like? What was he reflecting on? What was he, and where was he physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally and relationally with other people? So today, as we reflect on the suffering of Jesus... We're going to look at Matthew 26, 57 through 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest, and he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could immediately put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I will say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, have, you have heard blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they all answered. And then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who did that? You know, when I think about Easter and I think about Lent and I think about our journey to the cross, I often can think about and reflect on Jesus' physical pain, all he endured, all he encountered. I think about the contrast of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and how those that were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, then immediately said, crucify him. I think about Jesus being mocked and Judas betraying him, but rarely have I ever thought about Jesus being misunderstood and the slander that was against him. 
As we just read, Jesus was brought to the high priest, and the high priest was on a mission, and he had one agenda, and he wanted Jesus gone, and he wanted him gone for good. A friend of mine once told me that there is nothing worse than a person with an agenda trying to take a group of people to make a decision. Although Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin had limited interaction with Jesus, they believed they knew better than anyone else. And so they put Jesus on trial. They found two witnesses that exaggerated their stories about Jesus, which then accelerated Jesus' fate on the cross. To Caiaphas, Jesus was too disrupting. He made the religious leaders uncomfortable. His words were not their words. Too many people were talking about this new way of life that Jesus was offering, one that was full of freedom, one that was life-giving, one that wasn't keeping them chained. Too many people were believing Jesus really was the Messiah. But in Caiaphas' mind, that couldn't be true. It would have been impossible to Caiaphas because he didn't come with his sword drawn, ready to take over Rome and overthrow it. Jesus' journey was physical. It was emotional, mental, spiritual, and relational. And instead of Jesus making sure that he had the final word about what was going on, he stayed silent and answered politely. Jesus didn't hold his head down in shame, but he also didn't hold his head high and haughty. Jesus stood there and listened. Jesus stood there as people let judgments flow from their mouth, As the character of Jesus, the motives of Jesus, his heart's intention was in question. I can't imagine how excruciating that physical pain would have been as Jesus laid willingly on the cross for all of us. But I also can't imagine how he suffered relationally with people he loved deeply and with others that barely knew him, as they quickly accused and abandoned him. But then there's another level, one that hits a little deeper. Some might say even more. The pain of being questioned about your heart's intentions. When Jesus, the only one to this day who has had the purest of heart intentions, laid everything out, and was accused of things he never intended. I can't imagine not defending myself. I can't imagine not standing there and setting the record straight once and for all. But Jesus, the rescuing king, suffered fully so that we could experience freedom and freedom to the full in all the depths that freedom offers. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for suffering in every way for us. Thank you for suffering for our brokenness. As we continue to journey to the cross this season, Jesus, may we see you, experience you, and learn to love more and more like you. And in the midst of that, will we learn to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Allie. And thank you to you all for entering in again this week to reflecting on Jesus' suffering. In this series, we're hearing different voices talk about different aspects of Jesus' suffering, and then we're talking about sexuality and um, 
the ideal of sexuality as the Bible lays it out, as God lays it out, uh, what that looks like, and then also just uh, the challenges to that, both the challenges in messages we hear or take in that are contrary to what God says about sexuality, but also just since we're all broken people and we're all broken sexually, the challenge of living out uh, God's ideal. So that's what we're going to talk about. I want to frame up the whole series again, uh, just so you know what we're talking about week by week and, and how this week fits into overall. So two weeks ago when we started the season, series, we looked at Jesus' suffering by being tempted and tested, and we talked about marriage and sexual immorality that week. Then last week, uh, we looked at Jesus' suffering by being abandoned, and we talked about singleness and isolation. Next week, we're going to reflect on Jesus' suffering by being betrayed, and we're talking about divorce and cohabitation. In two weeks, we'll look at Jesus' suffering by being rejected and condemned and talk about LGB and same-sex attraction. And then the final Sunday of Lent, we'll look at how Jesus suffered by being tormented and talk about sexual violation and abuse of power. So it would be pretty heavy things, particularly that last week. Now, each week, we've started by talking about what does Jesus say about this? He does not talk extensively about um, sexuality, human sexuality, but what he does say reinforces what is said throughout the Bible, and so we, we want to see that. Last week, we looked at uh, the fuller section of, of what we're going to look at than what we're going to look at today, and we'll look again at the fuller um, passage next week. I just want to look at one verse of what Jesus said, and this is in response to being asked about divorce, but what he does is, is give a foundation for how we view sexuality, um, and how we live out sexuality. So chapter 19, verse 4, Jesus says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? The quote is, made them male and female. He emphasizes that the Creator did that. That's the aspect I want us to talk about today. The ideal in the Bible that our sexuality we need to recognize comes from a Creator who made us male and female, man and woman. The challenge to that, um, more so maybe in our day, at least this first aspect of it than, than any other time throughout history, is, is the idea of trans, and I will explain that in a moment, um, and gender con confusion. So before um, talking about it, so I'm aware that this week there were things passed in the state of Iowa related to uh, trans, the trans community, and I just want to say really clearly, like I am, I have no interest in talking about politics up here. That's not my my goal to weigh in on politics. I want to explain what what I think the Bible says and how that would uh, impact uh, sexuality as it relates to trans. But I don't want to to get political. Um, and so let me, let me put a couple things out there to help us as we talk about this. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, in people who are um, concerned about the way uh, 
particularly the trans. Oh, I should quickly say, if we're going to talk about what the Bible says about LGBTQ+, what I want to be clear about is that LGB, what the Bible says about LGB, we're going to look at different passages and different things than the T. So today we're going to look at the T because you apply the Bible. There is some overlap, but they are pretty distinct, especially how we're applying the Bible. But some people, going back to what I was saying before, are particularly concerned about sort of what is advancing in, in, in tra- the trans, I don't know, you know how to say it, but what's advancing in that. Others are advocating for what's advancing, and, or, just, or for the people. Just, these are people, so they're advocating for them. And what can happen is the emotions get really high. And so we can quickly become angry. And that's why I wanted to read this verse, because we want to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because we don't get the results God is going for when we're angry and we talk right away and we don't listen. Now think about what Allie was just talking about, about Jesus being misunderstood, misrepresented. Jesus was misunderstood and misrepresented by religious people who knew the Bible. We do not want to be people who misrepresent and misunderstand others. And honestly, we have. For people in a trans community, we've made jokes, we've bullied, the church has condemned, they have shut the door. And so if someone is is wrestling with uh, what I'm about to talk about, and they come to the church, the church will be quickly say why they're wrong, why they need to go, why they... And it's like the door is shut. So if they want to process what's really going on in their mind and heart, well, I know it's not the church. I know that's not where I could do it. So I'm going to go somewhere else where I am safe, where I can process. So that's what happens. And But where they go does not say the things that Jesus says often. Maybe not always, and maybe not totally, but often they could get a different message because we haven't been people who say, we want to understand. So I'm going to share with you information from the Bible, perspectives. But I want to say that if I was talking to someone who is exploring these issues, wrestling with these issues, identifies as trans, I wouldn't start with talking about it the way I am, about all the things I know about it. I would start with like, help me understand what it's like for you. What do you mean by this term? And I would want to create a safe place. I would want to acknowledge where where things are really hard for a person. And then from there, we can have a conversation and they might be more open to my perspective. But honestly, they aren't going to be very open to my perspective if I'm ready to give it right away. Okay? So, with that in mind, let's look at what Jesus was quoting when he said the Creator made them male and female. He was quoting Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, verse 27. I'm going to pick it up in verse 26, the verse right before it. Which says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air 
in the sky and the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So if we were reading the whole chapter of of Genesis 1, there is a rhythm to it, almost a poetry to how it talks about God creating, where he speaks and things come into being, and he speaks and things come into being. And every time, there's morning, there's evening, the first day, the second day, and it was good, it was good. There's this repeated patterns. And then we get to verse 26, which I just read, and it's like this pause. It's like, wait a minute, the council of God, the trinity of God is going is to say together, we're going to do something different now with this last creative act. We're going to create someone in our image to physically manifest our presence on the ground. The image back then would be making visible the invisible. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna create some, someone different now. And there's an emphasis on created. God created mankind. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created them. How did he do that? Look at chapter 2, verse 7 with me, which says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. There is an intimacy, an intentionality, a closeness breathed into him. It was different than just saying, let there be. Let animals come from the land. He just spoke and it happened. But this time, he gathered the dust. He breathed himself. It was, it was intentional. It was specific. It was intimate. Then, if we keep reading in Genesis chapter 2, we would see that God brought all the animals before uh, Adam. And he named them all. But there was no suitable helper, no suitable partner for him. There was no one that was like him. They were living beings. They were male and female. They were, they were that, but they, didn't, they were not created in the image of God. Only Adam was created in the image of God. And so, in chapter 2, verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. By the way, the ribs, just a little side note, everywhere else except for this chapter where this word in Hebrew is used, it talks, it's actually talking about the side of temple architecture. So we are, we are the temple of God. Anyway, I couldn't resist that. And then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib or the side he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So he says, now this one, after seeing all these other living creatures, this one is like me. Why? Because God created her in his image, just like he created Adam in his image. He did it differently than he created everything else in image, God's image. He also made them distinct from each other, male and female, man and woman. They were different from one another. They were like one another more than anything else he created because they are in his image, but they were distinct from each other. Two. So let me get into terminology best I can, because I am certainly 
no expert on these matters. But as we're talking about trans with an asterisk in it, that is an umbrella term. And it's an umbrella term to talk about sex and gender. Now, I have often put sex and gender together in one of their meanings and still do. In your passport, it'd say gender and you'd say male or female. But when we're talking about things related to uh, the idea of trans, then we need to separate those two things. There is biological sex, which is man or woman, and that is clear biologically and scientifically. A man has certain body uh, organs, body parts, reproductive parts, different than a woman. They're just, they're just different. Just real quick, there is intersex. So like last week I read Jesus said, talking about eunuchs, said some are born this way. And so some people will bring that up. Well, what about unisex? It's a very small percentage of the population. There are 16 different types of unisex where the person comes out, body parts aren't the same. 15 of those 16 you can still identify as male and female. Anyway, that is something, if you'd want to know more about intersex, well, this is a, a great book about trans, uh, the Trans Conversation, Transgender Identities, the Church, and What the Bible Has to Say by Preston Sprinkled Embodied. I'm going to get all the books I'm recommending out in two weeks. Um, but there's an entire chapter on intersex. That's as much as I can say about it for now because of time. So going back to biological male and female, there are body parts, there are hormones, more hormones like estrogen released, released for a, a female, testosterone for a male, and what are the ramifications of that? There are the chromosomes in our cells. XX for a woman, XY for a male. It's just written into our body scientifically, biologically. So if we're talking about biological sex, then it's clear. Two. There are two things. When we're talking about gender, or when other people are talking about gender, what they're often talking about is psychological, cultural, social uh, way we think about being male or female, or masculinity or feminine. So psychologically, how do we think about being a male or female? Culturally or socially with people, what are the gender stereotypes or norms? What's normal for male or female? Okay, so in, uh, in that, some people will feel like their gender, psychologically how they're thinking about it or how they would express themselves, does not match their biological sex. And trans is an umbrella term for people who don't feel like those two things match up. Like to just say you're a man, if you're a biological man, does not match how you feel about yourself. It could be, so a term non-binary would be a person who's like, I just don't think I'm just a man. I don't think that applies to me. Maybe because I don't think I'm either. I don't think those definitions quite fit right. Or maybe I feel like I'm both. Gender fluid would say sometimes I feel like one and identify with one. Sometimes I identify with a different one. If you are going to transition, that's another term. So to transition means that you would identify with the gender that's opposite of your biological sex. So if you're going to socially transition, what a person might, might be saying or doing is, you're going to refer to them by a different name or by different pronouns. You're going to, the pronouns that would 
well, there's lots of pronouns now, but, but uh, maybe most typically, like the girl pronouns if you're a biological male, or vice versa. You might dress differently. You, that you are socially transitioning. To take that a step further in transitioning might be to involve, um, if you're a teenager, puberty blockers, or if you are, either way, teenager or not, to say, I'm gonna pump hormones like into me like estrogen if I'm a guy, or testosterone if I'm a gal, to further the way you're transitioning to be the gender that you feel more natural in, but is different than your biological sex. And then to have a sex operation is to do that entire thing, to go the full way. So, medically speaking, there is a term gender dysphoria, and historically, it's a very, very small percentage of the population has gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is like you, you cannot function well operating like and identifying as the gender that you are biologically. It sounds very painful, very difficult, is a very, is a very difficult condition. More recently, there is a term has, as to describe what's been happening more recently is uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria. Rapid. This is happening more, this would be described more what's happening in our teenage population. Because many, many, uh, an increasing percentage of teenagers, especially biological females who are identifying as males, it, the, the percentages are just super growing su at a super fast rate. And often, why it's called rapid onset is often parents have not seen any... It's not like we've been talking about this for years. It's like relative, in a relatively quick manner, a person decides to socially transition to the opposite gender of their biological sex. And so, some people in the, some older people who are trans have been kind of hurt by some of this because they have had a very difficult, painful condition, but, um, and, and have been mocked, ridiculed, made fun of for it. And what they're seeing now with teenagers is actually, I'm not sure how it would be around here, I do hear that kids are not bullied um, in, our, in our schools. There's a lot of like acceptance of it in our schools, but in a lot of places, you become more popular if, you're, if you go trans. And so there's a way in which there's a wondering, like, what is driving this from the older trans community? So I want to lay all that out. Um, there, is, there are many more terms out there more than um, I could keep up with. And I think what that speaks to is there is a desire to say, how can I articulate what I am feeling? Who I really am? How can I articulate that? I'm having trouble articulating that. Okay, so as I said, the Bible is pretty clear on that it's male and female. That's how God created us. Now, someone might say, well, yeah, that was before the fall. That was before the curse. That was before brokenness 
is brought in, and so does it really apply the same way now? Well, Genesis, which I think is a great point, I think Genesis chapter 5 would say, this is the this is Genesis chapter 5 is after the fall, after sin entered the world, after the curse entered the world. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. So after the fall, the Bible again states God created them male and female. It is still how he intended it. Even after the fall, he's, he's still intending it. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, verse 5, a woman must not wear men's clothing, nor a man wear women, women's clothing, for the Lord your God detests anyone who does this. Now, if we were going to apply everything that's written in Deuteronomy, there's some strange stuff in Deuteronomy. I wanted to share one of the things, and then I realized it's like kids are in here today, so... Um, but so we need to ask, why is this in the Bible then? Why are these things? Because there's, you know, why can you not eat these things? Why are we calling this clean and unclean? Why, what of it has to do with them being separate and an identity marker as they prepare for the Messiah? What has to do with good health or good government instructions from God that made sense back then but is different to us now? What, what is what? This particular thing about why would God say don't dress like a woman or don't dress like a man? I want to offer one possibility based on what we just read is that God created men to be men and women to be women and so we shouldn't deny who he created us to be. And maybe identifying as the opposite would be denying how God created us to be. Now, there's, hang in there. For some of you, might, there's, I understand some of the objections to just that argument, but I, I, I just want to put it there for now. Okay, so moving on, he, in the New Testament, so some of you say, well, that's fine, but what about the New Testament? What about when Jesus comes? Because there's a lot of the law that looks different, and how we apply it is different once Jesus came, and that's a fair point. I think there's two instances in the New Testament where we could say, well, what about this? So one of those would be in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees ask, or the Sadducees ask him, they're trying to, to trick Jesus. They say, so what happens when, or trap Jesus, they're probably smart enough to know they can't trick him by now. What happens when someone marries someone and that person dies and they marry someone else and then that person dies and they marry someone else, then when they get to heaven, who's their spouse? And Jesus' response is, at the resurrection, you are no longer married or given in marriage. You're like the angels in heaven. So, what someone could draw from that conclusion is, well, if we're like the angels from the heaven, then maybe we're not sexed beings in heaven when we get to our more perfected state. I would say I don't think that's true because right in there, Jesus says resurrected, which means bodily resurrection. There's many examples of, of Jesus talking about his bodily resurrection and he was resurrected as a man and also that we will be resurrected like him. We will be resurrected as men and women. I think that that's pretty clear, but even if it weren't, even if 
let's say we're resurrected and we're no longer male, female, man, woman. I, think it's, I still think it exists because we're created in his image. Anyway, even if it weren't the case, that's then. Now we are still male and female. And that got put in place when we were created and, and Jesus himself says it continues when he says, how do we think about marriage and sexuality? In the beginning, the creator made them male and female. One other passage would be Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, which says this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So some might say, well, after Jesus came, now he's done away with these distinctions. We're, we, we aren't male and female in the same way. We don't have to think about it the same way. The context of this passage is that he's talking about how are we apply the law now that Jesus is here. And what he's getting at is not that there's no more slaves and free people. There still were after that. Jews and Gentiles, there still were ethnically. Males or females, there still were. What he was getting at is, is how the law applies because, for example, back in the Old Testament, in the days pre-Jesus, if you were going to worship at the temple, there is the most holy place, the most holy place, the hot spot. This is where God is most present, where heaven and earth really come together, and only one person, the high priest, once a year can come into that hot spot. But other priests can get close to that hot spot. And then there's a court for the Levites, and they can get closer to that hot spot. And then beyond that, there's a place for Jewish men. They can be that much closer, but not as close as the priests to the hot spot. And then beyond that is the place for the Jewish women. So they can get close to the hot spot, but not as close as the Jewish men, and not as close as the Levites, and not as close as the priests. And then go back there, and there's the Gentiles. So they can, there's a court for them, but it's out beyond those doors. That's all the closer they can get. But now, in Christ Jesus, everybody can come to the hot spot. Whether you're slave or free, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, everyone has access to the hot spot. That's what he's saying there. And I can say that with confidence that he's not meaning anything besides that because he is the same person who wrote this. Now, hang on to your hats. This is when we're going to start having some fun. I praise you for remembering me in everything, for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head or source of every man is Christ, and the head or source of the woman is man. And the head or source of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if, a, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over his own head because of the angels. Nevertheless... In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. I feel like I'm reading a Dr. Seuss thing at some point. Right. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but if, that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair has been given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So if it wasn't enough that I'm talking about trans, we're going to get head covering passage in here today. I don't think, I haven't heard uh, any sermons on this passage, but I gave one like five or six years ago. Maybe we'll like put it back up on the, I don't remember what I said exactly. But what I do remember is this is a pretty complicated passage. There are things that you could talk about in terms of like what does leadership mean for women and men in the church? Um, and I and I don't have time to get into all of that. But what I will say is that what is clear is there is a repetitive distinction between man and woman being made. And I re-looked at a bunch of commentaries this week about this passage. And one of them that I don't remember being very impactful when I was preparing for this message um, back several years ago was of this little book, Paul for Everyone, uh, 1 Corinthians, N.T. Wright. So N.T. Wright is widely acknowledged as one of the leading Bible scholars of our lifetime. That's pretty commonly held. Even people that disagree with him would say that that's true. Um, and so he, he wrote this. This is like 20 years old. It's before any sort of like tension. He's not writing his comments with an agenda. But I, I felt like he gets to how the conclusions I've drawn from this passage would interpret them, and, but he does it in a more succinct way. So I'm going to read some of it, and some of the things I read are going to be up on the screen. But perhaps to the Corinthian surprise, Paul doesn't, he's talking about what does this passage mean. But perhaps to the Corinthian surprise, Paul doesn't congratulate women on this new expression of freedom. He insists on maintaining gender differentiation. The underlining point then seems to be that in worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves to honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. God made humans male and female and gave them authority over the world. And if humans are to reclaim this authority over the world, this will come about as they worship the true God, as they pray and prophesy in his name and are renewed in his image, in being what they were made to be in celebrating the genders God has given them. When a woman is praying or prophesying, she needs to be truly what she is since it is to male and female alike in their mutual interdependence as God's image-bearing creatures that the world, including the angels, is to be subject. God's creation needs humans to be fully, gloriously, and truly human, which means fully and truly male and female. The Corinthians then have drawn the wrong conclusion from the tradition that Paul had taught them. It seems clear that Paul's main aim was that the marks of difference between the sexes should not be set aside in worship. Now, to understand this passage, we need to understand what head coverings meant back then. Because what head coverings meant back then are not what they mean now. I mean, we can put on the bonnets and make sure we take off our ball caps if we're guys or whatever. That doesn't, that's not what it would mean to apply this passage correctly. Because bonnets and ball caps, that's not even how they worked back then. If a woman didn't have a head covering on back then, if a woman let her hair down back then, it was often a sign of being a prostitute. 
If you walked into church and the worship team's in Victoria's Secret clothes, you're like, Boo. well, that's what letting your hair down meant culturally. So just to understand, we have to understand the passage itself or the culture itself to understand how do we apply it. So whether it's the Deuteronomy passage or this passage, what does that mean about clothes? Well, it's different what it means then. I mean, so if I'm wearing a kilt in Scotland, how does that work? If I'm wearing a dress in Africa, well, men wear those things. If we're wearing jeans, the gals wearing jeans, the guys wearing jeans, we're not trying to dress like one another. It's just, it's different culture. And that's what's true of many stereotypes. So they are, they are related to the culture we live in. So the Bible has actually very few things that say, so this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a woman. It has very few. There's two potential roles. You might become a wife or a mother if you're a woman. You might become a husband or a father if you're a man. And it does say some things about that. But I bring that up because sometimes what we're talking about is just cultural gender stereotypes. Well, I feel like I'm this gender who does, appreciates these things, which in our culture might be more male or female, but not, the Bible doesn't weigh in on that. So, um, one thing I think would be helpful for all of us to think about is where do we get our sense of identity? Where do we get our sense of identity? And one of the ways I think we can get our sense of identity is what do people say about us? What do people say about us? Do they affirm a certain thing about us? Well, then that must be what I have to still be good at or be like, and then they'll affirm me. Did they, did they say things that weren't good about me? That's why I feel like a loser, because this person said this about me, and I must be, this must be who I am. And I think we would all agree, that's not helpful. There can be blessing in which we call out the good, but if we live based on, like, who I am is based on who you think I am, and what you say about me, and if you like me, that's not a very good place to live. So, in our times, there's an opposite message that comes often, and that is, I need to figure out who I am. What feels right? What feels good? That's what I need to figure out. So, Adam, if you can go back to the second quote, it is important for both men and women to be truly, to be their truly created selves. In our culture, we say, we need to figure out who we are, be true to ourselves. It's all looking inward. This says we need to be our truly created selves. Who were we created to be? If I just go with how I feel, since I'm a broken person, that's not going to be a very good barometer. I can't, I can't handle that. And my sexuality, my sexual identity cannot handle the weight of that. Who does your creator say you are? Who does my creator say I am? I want to embrace that. Because that, he's the one who says, you are created, everyone is created in God's image. 
Everyone can be adopted into his family as a child of God, can be called a son or a daughter through Jesus. Who are we in Jesus? We are chosen. We are holy, which means special and separate and set apart for a purpose. We are dearly loved. That's who our creator says we are. But I think most of us spend a lot of time saying, what do people think I am? What do people, what do people think? I must be this? Because they say, or, okay, what feels right? What makes me happy? What? And the more we look inside, the more we have anxiety and depression. We are not going to figure it out. We need to point at who made us and come into agreement with the one who made us. Now, relatively quickly, I want to talk about one more challenge before we close. And that's the challenge of self-hatred or gender hatred. So when I was in my 20s, I spent a lot of time, not like, it would come in seasons, but just wrestling with like not feeling like a man. Not like what I'm talking about where I felt like I was identifying with a different gender, but just feeling like, like I'm not man enough. It would especially come around things with like fixing things or mechanical or building stuff. I mean, I've told the story several times of me walking into the kitchen in, in one of our old houses and Camille was drilling in something and she was going to drill halfway, like drill halfway through the wood and she was doing it on our kitchen countertop and I come in and she looks at me and she said, don't you ever do a drill on our countertop. Right? And she was right, because they're right in through there. Now we have a nice little hole in our countertop if I was doing it. So, you know, my dad was good at fixing stuff, could figure out anything. My father-in-law, they both built their own houses. Like, they were the general contractors of building their own houses. And then there's me. I got my wife giving me rules about the power tools. <laughs> For good reason. And so in wrestling in that, um, there are a number of things that were helpful in me just coming to be okay with who I am, and, being, and that's what it means for me to be a man. Um, one of the things that impacted me is I went to a couple of conferences that, that talked about lots of things that had to do with masculinity and femininity, but particularly they brought up this idea of misogyny, hatred of women, or fear of women, or hatred of the feminine, and misandry, hatred of male or what's male. It's, and so we're, I'm in a session. This is a whole week conference. We're on day two or three. And they're talking about misogyny, the hatred of women. And there were two very startling things to me. They get done talking about it, explaining it. It's pretty complex in the way they were talking about it. And they said, we're just going to pray about it. That if you carry misogyny in you, we're going to pray that, that you get healed from that and freed from that. So we go to pray. And I mean blood-curdling screams from toes up. Like, I've never experienced anything like that. Like screaming when we start praying about it. I see people manifesting demons. There's 800 people in the room. I am like, where am I? Now, think about, we'll talk about more in a couple of weeks, but think about if a woman is repeatedly sexually abused. You start to hate that you're a woman. You start to hate whatever it is that's 
in, in, in your mind, thinking inviting this or allowing this or what, you hate it. And there's many other things, maybe, maybe less extreme than that. And so you just develop a spirit that's not even at your conscious level. That's just like, I hate my womanhood. I hate it. Now that would make sense to me. But here's the second surprise. I mean, after it got over the, like all the stimulation, I just enter in. Lord, if there's any, anything with misogyny related to me, like I don't feel like I have any issues with women or whatever. And I just start bawling. And I talked to a number of men who said that was the session when they were at the best conference. Or it was this issue of misogyny that was so impacting on men. It's like, what is this? It happens at a very, it's in our uh, subconscious. So it's very hard to do, but there is something there. Now let's talk about men. Many men have not felt comfortable in church. They were going to sit, we're going to sing, I, I want to do something. And so there are expressions of church that say, like, let's let men be men. Okay. And sometimes that's good. Sometimes what we have heard about repeatedly in the last decades is when it's very male-dominated leadership, then there can be ways in which women are diminished from that. And so there is sort of a sniff test, I notice, of like, are we being too men, too masculine, hypermasculinity? So it's like, we don't want to be hypermasculinity, so we're going to emasculate the men in church. Can I offer, can we just say, if a man is sensitive, artistic, articulate, likes to talk, isn't into sports or building things, can we say to that man, I love the way God created you to be a man. We could use a little bit more of that in our church. And if there's a person who doesn't like to sit and sing and talk, but serves, is active, is, you know, some of the more stereotype male things, can we say like, we are glad that God made you a man like that. We need men like that, and we need men like that to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can we say that? Instead of having to fit some sort of type that's really humanly made, can we celebrate the way God made us? Can I say, can we celebrate even the way our bodies are? A lot of our self-hatred comes from the way we look and we don't look like this or that or the other thing. Look, God made us and he loves the way he made us. And our bodies may be broken right now and they're going to be breaking down and all of that, but one day our bodies are going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. And he, that is what he's put in you. That is how he's molded you now and that's what's coming. And so can we say thank you for making me the way you made me. All right. One more story. I'll have the worship team come up. Well, first, 
I mean, worship can come up, but first let me just say, in response to how Jesus suffered, Jesus is up there being pressured, being misrepresented, being accused, being all this stuff coming at him. And when he gets asked the question of, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you really that? His response is yes. I know who I am because this is who, who God says I am. Because the father said, this is my son with whom I delight. With him I'm well pleased. And so Jesus, in the midst of pressure, in the midst of being mocked, in the midst of being bullied, in the midst of all of that, he says, you want to know how I know who I am? It's whatever God says about me. That's who I am. And that's the one who says, come to me. I'll tell you who you are. I'll tell you who I've made you to be. Come to me. One more story from a woman who was at that conference I'm talking about. And in the session on misogyny, there is a, uh, she, when they go to the prayer time, has a vision. I don't know how she has visions, but she, she could see something really clear. It's, it's a memory, actually. It's her birth. As she comes out into the world, she sees her dad, and he is disappointed. He wanted a boy. She could feel the disappointment. However accurate her picture was, as a baby, that's what she experienced, probably. And she carried that with her into adulthood. Her dad was great to her. Her dad loved her. Her dad affirmed her. Her dad she was special. But she still had the memory of he really wanted a boy. And then she had another picture and she came out and she saw Jesus and he was super happy and just welcoming her in and super excited that she was in the room and just loving her. Yes. And she didn't have to carry that disappointment anymore because she knew someone else was saying, Jesus was saying, come on, here you are. I have made you to be like this. This is who you are. That's what he can do for us. He can, he can tell us who we really are. If we just look inside ourselves, if we look, it just gets really confusing. He can tell us who we really are as a man or a woman. Our job is to listen to him and respond. And then we will become the man we were created to be or the woman we were created to be. So we're going to pray now as we move towards a close. Let's pray. Oh God, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by, by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior. I provide what has great value for your ransom, a sacrifice in your place. I give my son in exchange for you, and he offers himself in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Sing that again if you know it. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me 
were written in your book before one of them even came to be. And so I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Lord, I pray that you would minister deeply to our hidden places. Thank you, Jesus, that I just sensed you moving through the room. Moving through the room. Thank you that you are the one where we get our identity. Thank you that you don't misunderstand us. You are our defender. going to stay here for a few moments. Fill us up, Lord. Fill us up, Lord. We need you. The depths of our souls, we need you. forgive us for any ways that we as a church have not helped people who are trying to process their identity or their sexuality. Would you make us more whole so that we can respond like you do? Heal us that we can be healing agents for you. The Lord loves you. Jesus loves you. 
He loves the way he made you. He loves what he has in mind for the rest of your life and into eternity. The Lord loves you. Thank you. God, give us a sense of being and a sense of well-being. Put that into us today. We're going to transition to our final song in a moment. Would you just take these last few moments to say what you want to say to Jesus? Now, as we go into this song, may the truths that are in it go with you from this place. Be infused in you and go with you. In Jesus' name, amen.